This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. A study in the Christian's deliberate avoidance of self-identity. Boy, does that sound confusing. Uh, This isn't going to be some high-level intellectual message. I always try and avoid that. At the same time, it has a lot of depth to it. So I'm going to fool some of you by the way I deliver it. I'm going to give you some good depth, even though it's not going to feel like weighty and highly intellectual. And so I'm sorry to do that, even in the title. I got some big words. Uh, Hopefully you know what a Christian is, but deliberate, that's sort of a big word. Avoidance, you probably know what it is, but self-identity, oh boy. There's some psychobabble going on up here. And that's exactly what it is. In other words, this idea of self-identity is a modern term. It is not a biblical concept. It is a modern term that has emerged over the past 50, 60 years uh, with the advent of popular psychology or modern psychology. And so it's something that I want us to be aware of as Christians so that we can more appropriately interrelate the truth of the kingdom of heaven with the modern world in which we live, which uses terminology that is not always biblical, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. For instance, I could use the word dysfunction. Well, that's a modern pop psychology term, and it's not bad. It just means something that's not working. It's breaking down. And so I could say, yes, I have a dysfunctional such-and-such part of my life. And it could be an accurate statement, and you would understand what I mean. In other words, I'm using vocabulary that might not be old-fashioned. It might not be in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's wrong. And so we're going to explore that. There's some terms that have been new and newly invented terms. Uh, then there are terms that are actually very dangerous terms that are lurking about in our world that we as Christians just assume have always been there. And they've been woven in with Christianity, which makes it somewhat difficult for some of us that are new to Christianity to distinguish what we're talking about. The doctrine of disappearance. Technically, that's not a classically known doctrine. I just sort of made up the statement. But there is a doctrine. It's an idea in Scripture of when we come to Jesus Christ, we are called to disappear. That sounds really strange. It's sort of like John the Baptist. Leslie mentioned that this weekend, that when the Messiah came, John recognized that his role was to decrease so that Jesus would be seen and would increase. And so When the Messiah comes, when Jesus Christ enters your life, one of the most important attributes or first steps forward of this meeting of the Christ is that we get small so that he can get big in our life. I'll call this the doctrine of disappearance. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so that word hidden is krupto, which means to bury, to conceal to escape notice. So let's look at this. For you died and your life is now buried, which means to be covered. It's no longer visible. When something is buried, it's no longer visible to the eye. It is concealed and it now escapes notice. 
Now, what you'll notice if you know yourself is you would recognize one unique attribute. It's actually not unique at all, but it is fascinating to ponder how much even those of us that are shy really desire still to be known. We desire to be understood. We desire to not escape notice, but to be noticed. It's a weird quality that we all have. We don't want to be forgotten in this world. We don't just want to live our life and die and no one remembers that we existed. There's something really scary about that. And so this idea, this crypto, seems to go against the grain of who we are. You see, when we enter into the life of Christ, we are meant to be hidden, crypto, to be buried, to be concealed. Not so that we are actually invisible on this earth, but so that our invisibility actually enables his visibility. See, something is meant to be seen in our life, and I'm going to call that the doctrine of declaration. The doctrine of declaration is the opposite of doctrine of disappearance, and it uses the same word. You are the light of the world. The city is set on a hill. A city that is set on a hill cannot be crypto. So what's interesting is you enter into Christ and you are hidden. You are no longer seen and made visible. Who you are. And yet, Jesus says you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, it cannot be crypto. It cannot be concealed. That sounds like a contradiction. And yet it's not. You see, when you come to Christ, you are hidden. And I'm going to emphasize you. You are hidden. But that doesn't mean that your life doesn't shine. But what you shine is not you. What you shine is the light of the world. And his name is Jesus Christ. This is a quote that Leslie read this weekend that is so powerful. And it has to do with the choice of a Christian. She talked a lot about Gladys Aylward. Gladys Aylward is one of our heroes. So the Ludi family always is going through audiobooks, and the story of Gladys Aylward is always in our rotation. And so she's just a remarkable woman that did not think she was remarkable at all. In fact, someone was doing writing about missionaries in China, and uh, they, they heard that there was this lady named Gladys Aylward. You should go to her and get some of her stories. She has some great stories. So they come to her and say, could you tell us some of the remarkable things that God has done in your life? And she just looks back and goes, I, don't, I think you have the wrong person. I, nothing really remarkable has happened in my life. You know, I'm not that important of a person. And then she starts talking, and this guy is just like taking down these stories like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But to her, it was just life. She didn't think that she was anything special. She wasn't living to be seen, to be known, to have books written about her. A movie was made about her. I mean, this lady was all over the world at one point in time, and she hid she didn't want it to be about her. No, don't talk about me. Listen to this. She comes, this is later in her life, and this is what she said. I have not done what I wanted to do. I have not eaten what I wanted to or worn what I would have chosen. I have not lived in a house that I would have ever looked at twice. I longed for a husband, baby, security, and love. God didn't give that. He left me alone for 17 years with one book, a Chinese Bible. I don't know anything about your latest novels, pictures, theaters. I live in a rather outdated world, and I suppose you say, well, it's awful miserable, isn't it? Friends, I've been one of the happiest women that has ever stepped to this earth. I've raised someone else's children whom I've, I've loved with a great love because Jesus Christ loved me and who I'm now receiving love back from. Lord, give us freedom. 
freedom in thee, that you might be able to pick us up and put us down and use us when and where and how you like, that someone might know how much you love them. There's something about that quote that is quite profound. You see, we oftentimes have our agenda in this life. We know what we like, what kind of house we want to live in, where, what we want to wear, what message we want to give to the world. And yet what this woman is saying is, look, I lost my life somewhere way back then. And the life I've lived has not been the life that I would have lived if Gladys Aylward was the one choosing. It's the life that God lived through me. And yet, because I allowed God to choose how this life would work, I am one of the happiest women that ever walked this earth. She's on to something. You see, it's this combination of the doctrine of disappearance with the doctrine of declaration. She declared the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through her life. And even that quote, you have to admit, even though it scares some of us in here, it declares something to us so profound that when she disappeared and lost herself in the purposes of Jesus Christ, she found something far greater than what most of us in this room have ever found. The battle over you. I've often said that the centerpiece of the real battle of the ages is not your cat, is not the clock on the wall. Uh, the enemy is not out to get this chair. And God's not after this chair. God's after people. He's after you. Or I could say use, add a plural to it. It's all of us. He's after the you. And the enemy is after the you as well. And so the enemy wants to distort you. He wants to distort that very center of who you are, which is you. This whole idea of self is a really odd thing to know how to deal with. Because, I mean, the Bible's very clear about self. And what does that mean? Am I supposed to disappear in the sense that I don't exist? I used to really struggle with that. When I would hear about the fact that I need to deny myself or die to myself, what does that mean? Does that mean I just sort of flop around and God animates this body and I'm like, God, what are you doing with me? And he's just sort of moving me around and I'm watching it. Maybe from a distance, maybe in a heavenly vantage point. It's like, oh God, whoa, whoa, God, no, watch out. There's a, you know, a, a, a corner of a coffee table there. Ah, he just bumped my shin. In other words, where I have no control, I just watch it from a different vantage point. How, how does this work? Well, you see, as you begin to understand the mechanics of Christianity, you realize that there's a position of control. And when self is in the control position, your life produces bad fruit. It's called sin. But when you yield up that control position and you allow Jesus Christ into it, it doesn't mean you disappear, but you are now the butler of the estate. And you come unto him and you say, what do you desire today, Lord? And now you do what he would ask you to do in this body. This is the estate of the Lord. He has bought and purchased it with his blood. We have a propensity to take the lead and to say, this is my estate. It's called Eric Ludi, after all. I mean, hey, this is my body. I can do with it what I desire. And that's when you end up in the wrong place. And the devil is very good at sponsoring you in the wrong place. So here we go back. We're in Ezekiel. We're discussing Lucifer. Lucifer is... Uh, he's otherwise known as Satan. He's a bad dude, okay? And this is what it says. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You see, when you choose your splendor to be seen, for your beauty to be known instead of God's, what it does is it corrupts wisdom. And so the enemy corrupted his wisdom for the sake of being seen. And as a result, what you will notice in and through this message is this battle over all of us, that the enemy has distorted something. He has a very distorted wisdom. He wants to be seen. He wants to be known. And he knows how to distort you. And that's that he begins to sponsor the notion that you need to be seen and you need to be known. So Jesus is going to contrast all of this. And he says, then he said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone desires to come after me, and we're like, yeah, that's, that's me. I would like to do that. Jesus, can I come after you? He says, yes, I want you to come after me. But if you're going to come after me, you need to first deny yourself. Let him first deny himself. You need to step down from that position, that position of control. You know, the one that makes it all about you. You need to find your position as a servant. Come on, step down. Whoa, 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 whoa. I want to follow you, but I don't want to give up that. Well, then you can't be his disciple. It's that simple. He's the one that said it, not me. So if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I don't know if you've ever studied crosses, but they kill people. They're not a very friendly apparatus. They leave you dead. Whoever hangs on a cross doesn't get off and you know, run a marathon that day. They die, and they're no longer seen. They're buried. You see, if you want to follow Jesus and be his disciples, this is where it starts. You must be hidden. You need to die with Christ and be buried. You need to be concealed so that the resurrection life of Jesus can burst forth. And this world will now behold him instead of you. Lucifer's failure. Well, he pursued the splendor of self. I bet there's some very talented people in here. And there's a voice that niggles at us. You need to let the world see that. In fact, the well-meaning people in our life are always telling us, you have something to give this world. And it's not like that's a falsehood, that you have no talent or that you aren't important. It's just that that's not how Christianity functions. Christianity is not about elevating us. It is about elevating him. That does not mean we do not have value. It just means we have to be very watchful because the enemy has a twist in the story. Let's talk about Christ's success. He pursued the splendor of one greater. You see, Jesus is God, but he came to this earth to live as a man, though he was God, to show us how a man ought to live. In other words, he became dependent upon God the way we are to, and he did not Make it about himself. He made it about something greater. He made it about the Father. And in so doing, he perfectly fulfilled the way a man is supposed to live. He showcased it right. So let's look at this word identity. It's a very, very common word today. In fact, it is one of the most commonly used words in describing almost anything today when you're trying to help someone. Help someone work through their baggage. Help someone work through their issues. Identity has become a very significant word. And as a result, I would say as the church of Jesus Christ, it's very important that we understand this word. So identity, if you look it up in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, it's the original Webster's Dictionary, uh, it just has one definition. 
If you look up a, a modern definition of identity, there's about you know, 15. It's just a huge word today. But it simply means sameness. That's what it means. It's like, is that it? Yep, sameness. It's the same as something. That's what identity would mean in the old-fashioned sense. Sameness. It means not diverse, but similar. Not unusual, but the same. Look at this. Identical. Do you see anything similar in that? Identical and identity. Okay, so say I'm going to identify someone. What do I have? It's like, okay, I have a picture here. And then I come up and I see the person there. I'm like, oh, I've identified them. They're the same as their picture. Does that make sense? Now, what's interesting is what I just gave you is the word identity is the exact opposite of how many of us use it today. Isn't that ironic? You see, this says not diverse, but similar. What do we mean? What makes you unique? What's your identity? Well, that's odd. How did that happen? That's what I want to go through because something has happened with this word and it doesn't mean that it's wrong because there are unique things about you and that's fine. In other words, it's not that that's a bad thing, that you have uniquenesses. It's just that this word can be leveraged against us. So here's some illustrations. For instance, identity is often used in mathematics. And it basically means that one side of an equation is the same as the other, though they have unique attributes to them. So 4 plus 3 equals, or is the same as, or is identical to 2 plus 5. And you could say, a 4 is not like a 2. Yeah, but a 4 plus a 3 is just like a 2 plus a 5. Well, that's, that's amazing. So you see, that's identity. 6 plus 1 is the same as 8 minus 1. Some of you are learning a lot about math this morning. It's like, boy, this is good stuff. So identity, the newfangled definition. Okay, so what has happened in our modern day is we have a new word. And I don't want to necessarily say that the word in and of itself is bad. It's just that it has some baggage with it that we need to be aware of. Okay? So identity, what makes you unique? Your diverse and defined qualities and attributes. That which separates you out as you and causes you to be understood and known as you. You'll notice a lot of you in there. And as a result, as Christians, we are, have a bait here. Because the entirety of Christianity is not about you. It's about him. And so when we start following this trail and we begin to feel that this is a very spiritual concept, well, you need to know who you are. You need to know your identity. Well, there's nothing wrong with having identity. However... This is bait. Bait for you to take the focus off of what this life is about and stick it on what this life is not supposed to be about, and that's you. So I'm going to give you some identity again. Three plus three equals Chuck. So Chuck is like, hey, I just want you guys all to know I'm three plus three. <laughs> Lucy comes into the room and goes, I'm a one and a five. And we're like, whew. And then Darla comes in. She's a seven minus one. Tony is a little more complex. He's an 18 minus 12. Some people have to do that in their head. They're like, no, no, no. And look at Brady. Brady's an intellectual. 3,534 divided by 589. And by the way, every single one of those, so you don't need to do the math and hurt yourself, equals six. You see, actually, they're all the same. That's what I'm going to say. But technically, they are all the same. They all amount to six. You see, six, I did this purposely for those of you that like numbers. 
in the Bible, God has a numbering system. And six would be what we could call the number of man. Seven being a number of completion. And so every single one of us is the same. We all are unique. All have unique attributes. Some of you might be a four plus a two. Some of you might be one of those, what was, what was Brady? 3,534 divided by 589. However, we all have the same problem. We are unfinished in need of help, pockmarked by sin and deserving of judgment. You see, we are not unusual, but actually very similar one to the other. We are made up of different numbers, but each one of us has the same end conclusion. As it is written, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. The scripture is confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all the same, people. We all have a problem. And so therefore, when you focus on you and try and figure out what makes you special, you oftentimes miss what you were created for, and that is that it isn't you. It's him. But when you focus on him, he solves your six. You see, as long as you remain a six, you remain incomplete. You remain destined for separation from God for all eternity along with every other six. You see, we're all identical in that regard. So what's our identity? Six equals sinner. I don't care how you get to the six. You can come up with all sorts of novel ways to do it. You can invent your way to be six, and you can have your numbering system that are very unique because there's a lot of numbers out there to choose from. However, it all is coming to the same computation. We're actually all are the same. We all share that same identity. We are the same as a sinner, equal to, one deser- equal to one deserving a just eternal penalty for our sin. Identity. Now, this word in the modern sense, it's really interesting. It's in the top 1% of lookups on Merriam-Webster online. In other words, that, that says a lot because there's a lot of words out there. And in the top 1% of lookups is this word. This word is highly used in our modern day. So just look at this, uh, this use over time of the word identity. So it's not that it didn't exist back in the 1800s. Like I said, it was in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. It was there, but it just meant the same. But something happened with the advent of pop modern psychology, and what you see is an explosion up until today of the use of this word. Self-identity. You guys ever heard of that? Uh-huh. You see, this is a very, very common thing. Now, you'll notice that that word in the front, self, is very, very leading to what this means. It's about you. What is your uniqueness is what this basically is going to mean. What makes me, me? That one question, though it may seem harmless on the outset, actually can embroil you in an entire mindset and search that derails you from the real purpose of your creation. The real purpose of your creation is not that you would discover yourself. I don't know, I, can you believe I'm saying this out loud in America? It isn't. It's that you would discover Jesus Christ. You see, you've been created for something more than yourself. And without that, you are incomplete. And that is the real purpose of your existence. I am not saying that you shouldn't know anything about yourself. I like peas. I don't, actually. I don't know why I use that as the illustration. (laughs) I'm not against peas. If any of you served me peas in the past at your house, I probably really enjoyed them. 
But in other words, the point of our existence isn't to be unfamiliar with who we are. It's the fact that we are supposed to be familiar with something more than we are familiar with ourselves. What are the qualities, beliefs, personality, looks, and or expressions that make me who I am? So I'm going to give you a little background on me. When you're in the public school system, self-identity is a huge point of concern. Now, you don't call it that, but it's, it's just you. It's, it's your style. I remember this guy that, that came, his name was Jeremy. He just moved to our, uh, our community, so he was in our, our school, and he had a, a locker about three down from me. And he came in, and I, I, he wore his hat backwards, his baseball cap backwards. And that was new. At that time, no one wore their hat backwards. And he did something, I don't remember, with, with his shirt, like half of it untucked or something. And I remember thinking, oh! I wish I had done that before he came because now if I did it, it would look like I was trying to be like him because I need to have my own self-identity. I need to be unique. I can't be the same. Isn't that just a fascinating thought? See, this identity thing is exactly opposite. When you, when you focus on you, when you're the center, you're looking for what causes you to be apart from everyone else, what causes you to stand out. Why? So that you're noticed, so that you're appreciated as having your unique style. Psychological identity, big word. What is my self-image? What is the mental model I have of myself? I know, big sounding words. Do I have self-esteem, self-awareness, and self-acceptance? Am I self-enlightened to know how totally capable I am to save myself? This is modern psychology. Modern psychology is completely built around self and understanding self and self-identity. The entire makeup of it is self. It comes from Freud and his entire self-analysis. This is where it comes from, and I'm going to go through that in just a second so you have a little better understanding of what we're dealing with. You see, when you analyze something, it doesn't mean you're wrong. If I were to analyze this room from a psychological worldview as opposed to a biblical worldview, I'd come to a different conclusion even though my observations, I still may call the chairs black. And so you can't just say that everything's false. However, you need to recognize that there can be some misleading aspects in it that take us away from what God teaches. Self-esteem in its very essence is the exact opposite of what God teaches. Isn't that funny? And most of you have grown up in a culture that teaches self-esteem. And so you're supposed to have good self-esteem. You know what Christ says? You're supposed to have good Christ-esteem. You're supposed to deny self. You're not supposed to esteem and worship and coddle self. You're supposed to let self go. It's the exact opposite. And yet most of us don't see it because self-esteem just sounds like a normal thing. That's what we grew up around. And yet that's actually not the framework of how a Christian reasons. You know, if you really want to understand the value that you have, come to the cross. Don't come to self-esteem and try and drum up value in your inner man. I'm important, I'm important, I'm, I'm, I'm valuable, I'm valuable. I came from a blob of slime, but I'm valuable, I'm important. It's ridiculous. You want to find out how important you are, come to the cross and see the shed blood of Jesus for you. He gave his life for you. You don't need to go after self-esteem. You find your value in his sacrifice. He loves you that much. That's pretty impressive. You see... Christianity rescues you. The devil distorts you and disturbs you and sends you to hell. He's all about that. To be saved from this, you must give up your life. You must give up you. 
Gender identity. Oh, what's Eric going to say about this? This will be fascinating. Who am I as a person in relation to other humans? This is the big question of our day. So everyone's saying in their self-analysis, who am I in relation to other humans? How do I relate to them? Am I a man in how I relate to them? Am I a woman in it? That is a possibility today, by the way. A dog? A giraffe? A cat? There are people that are identifying as cats today. A fire hydrant? I've never heard of it, but I put it in the list just to add some dimension of option. Why not? If you can be a cat, why can't you be a fire hydrant? What do I believe myself to be? Now, you'll notice something about this. It really doesn't matter what you believe yourself to be. Do you know that there's a fact of who you are outside of you and your opinion and your feelings? You see, if you're a man and you decide that you identify as a giraffe, it doesn't change the fact that you are, in fact, a man. If you are a woman who identifies as an it and refuses to be a, a woman, but also refuses to be a man, guess what? It doesn't change the fact that you are a woman. You see, this whole identity thing is allowing for the most ridiculous behavior, maybe ever in all of history, to be taking place in front of all of us, and we have to act like it's all normal. You see, there are facts that are outside of us. You are in need of a savior whether you acknowledge it or understand it at all. You are either a man or a woman. Whether you accept it or not, there is a condition of soul that you have. And as long as we look to our feelings and search ourselves to define who we are instead of listen to God and say, God, who am I? We cannot find life. Social identity. Where do I perceive myself in the social order around me? Am I above, below, or equal to those around me? In all of these cases, the question looks inward to find the answer. It looks to human feelings and perceptions. It's assumed that we as created beings define our own identity. Do you define your own identity? You see, we think that we make ourselves who we are. But you are a created being. God has made you who you are. And whether you like it or not, you are who you are. And the secret to being fulfilled in who you are isn't trying to study yourself and to be aware of yourself and to awaken to yourself at a greater level. It's to awaken to him. Who do I feel I am is the key question of our day. And there's another option. What does God say? I am. You see, most of us don't want to hear the answer to that. What does God say I am? Think about our culture. Do they want to hear the answer to that? What does God say that we are? You see, but what's interesting is everyone's so afraid of finding out that they're a sinner. Everyone's so afraid to find out that they're wrong and staying on the wrong side of the law of God. I understand that. It's not necessarily a fun feeling to find out that you are actually walking in the wrong direction. But guess what? Until you find out that you are wrong, you will never understand that But God so loved you that he gave up everything so that he could rescue, get this, you. Well, that's amazing. And that's very personal. And it puts value the way only God can put value on us. 
We're trying to find value, trying to find importance everywhere but where it truly comes from. And it leads to lunacy. Fact, faith, and experience. So I give this illustration at Ellerslie all the time. Some of you have heard it 50 times. There's three characters, and they're all commissioned to do the impossible, and that's to walk a ridgepole. I know, it doesn't sound impossible, does it? Ridgepole of a barn, but this is like a razor edge. Okay, so just trust me, it's impossible. The first character gets out, and his name is Fact. And he just gets up there and walks it, pulls off the impossible. Now, in Christianity, we don't usually use the word fact. We use the word truth. But it means that which is without error. Fact is that which is fact, true. It's without exaggeration. It's without lie. It's fact. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus has come to this earth, and he has walked the ridgepole. He lived the impossible life, the life that we all would love to live, but we can't seem to live. He lived it. So the second character's name is Faith. This is where all of us come in. You see, when we fix our gaze on the fact, you know that faith actually gains balance and is able to do something that it otherwise could never do, and that's walk the ridgepole, walk the impossible life? Now, that sounds really nice because you could say, well, okay, so the first two characters have just pulled off the impossible. However, the reason why many of you have not experienced walking this ridgepole, because you've fixed your gaze on Jesus, like, Jesus, I want to follow you, is because your gaze may likely not be fixed on the fact. Sounds good, the word of God, I believe it. Yeah, but you have a third character here. And this third character is rather loud. He makes a lot of noise, and he makes a lot of statements in this earth. And his name is experience. You could also call him emotion. There's a lot of different ways that we could describe him, but there's something other than the facts of God that are leading our life. And when you get distracted by your experience, when you get distracted by your emotion, your personal perceptions, what you find is that experience is very wobbly. Experience loves to fall off the top of the barn roof and land in that manure pile down at the bottom. And so there you find yourself as well. When faith takes its gaze and fix it on, fixes it on its experiences, this is what I've experienced, and we put faith in that. That's what we believe. I believe my experience. Well, no offense to your experience, but I'm not going to believe your experience. I'm going to believe the word of God, which cannot change and cannot lie. So therefore, when a Christian places their belief, their faith in the fact of God, which is unchanging, immovable, guess what? They gain balance to be able to walk out an impossible life. So does God care about our feelings? Does God care about our experience? Of course he does. However, the only way to get your experience to begin to walk the ridgepole is for faith to ignore it. You cannot heed it. You cannot listen to it. It's like bombs going off, fireworks displays behind you. You have to choose not to heed your experience, but not to heed your emotions, but to heed what the Word of God says. That's the secret to triumph in Christianity. Where did this self-focus come from? Let's go through a brief history lesson here. I'm going to have to take you all the way back to the beginning, and his name is the devil, Lucifer, the serpent. Then the serpent said to the woman, this is in the Garden of Eden, remember the tree with the fruit on it? You will not surely die. She said, well, if I eat of this, didn't God say that we would die? Oh, you will not surely die. So we have a version of Christianity that's like, well, aren't I supposed to deny myself? Wouldn't that be against God? No, God doesn't actually want you to carry a cross. 
God doesn't actually want you to die to yourself. No, who told you that? Exaggerations. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be self-enlightened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The very bait of the devil from the beginning is exalt yourself. Take the God position in your life. Is that what all started? It's the first false doctrine. Still exists. Be God in your life. Life is about you, capital Y. And when you live that way, you will find that your Christianity just doesn't seem to work. Why, why is that? Why is it that the Word of God, you can read it, you can study it, why is it that you can't live it? Because the only way for God to live through you is that you must humble yourself. You must die so that He can live. This is the secret to living. So I'm going to go through CNN's top or 10 ideas that changed the world. Uh, I don't necessarily think that these are the 10 greatest things uh, that have ever happened on earth. But I want to give you some perception from the earthly side of things of how people would say these are the ideas that have most changed the world in which we live. This is it's just a fascinating study. So gravity, well, that's pretty important to understand. Zero, uh, you know, there was a time, I guess, when zero was not known. I don't understand how they lived, but, uh, but so there's nothing there. What do you call it? I don't know. I, I, so I don't know how that worked, but zero made the list, the discovery of zero. Uh, soap, that would be a dark time uh, without that, too. Uh, the World Wide Web made the list, and that's uh, hard for some of us to imagine not having that as well, even though there's part of me that wishes we never had that. Uh, so I'm going to just stop on a couple of them. I'm going to make them big. Evolution uh, made the list, okay? That this is one of the top 10 ideas that has shaped the world, evolution. By the way, I am not an evolutionist. I don't know how well you know me. I believe in what the Bible says. I believe God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it in six days, just like it says. I actually am, I mean, some people would say stupid enough to believe that, dull enough, dim-witted enough, but I actually believe it. I believe what the Bible says. It's that simple. And so evolution goes against the grain of who I am. However, I'm not going to argue that it's shaped the world in which we live. Listen to what it says. Once describes the single best idea anyone has ever had. Could you imagine? It's the single best idea anyone has ever had. It was a man idea. English naturalist Charles Darwin's theory of evolution proposes that all life, including humans, is related and descended from a common ancestor. Prior to Darwin's theory, published in On, on the Origin of Species in 1859, it was accepted that man came from an archetype created by God. So before this time, I guess it was this Adam character that was uh, sort of the archetype uh, we're all descended from and was set apart from animals. Darwin's theories showed creation had taken longer than the biblical seven days and that man was, in fact, likely to be descended from apes. As well as launching a revolution in biology, his, ideas, his idea irrevocably shook the human race's conception of where they came from. When you remove God from the equation, everything shifts. Everything. And so as a result, this idea, I'm not going to argue with CNN's list here, evolution has completely altered the way that people live and the way that they think. So human rights made the list. Vaccinations. Relativity, the theory of relativity. 
And then I'm going to stop on this one, number two, the unconscious. Uh, that's a fascinating one, and so you're like, what is that? I'll read what it said. When Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, suggested that our behavior is not always ruled by our conscious thoughts, nor is it always in our best interest, he formed the basis of the idea that individuals can be curious about themselves and make a study of their own minds. He thought people talking in certain situations could let out ideas from the unconscious in dreams or through slips of the tongue, hence the term Freudian slip. His ideas have permeated pop culture to such an extent that much of what we understand about the sexes, relationships, films, and books can be seen as reflected through a Freudian mirror. I'm not going to argue. I think this idea has so permeated our culture that Christians think these thoughts without recognizing where they came from. That they actually don't derive from the Word of God. They arrive from a different source. Farming also is very important. I agree. I think that's a good list. It's sort of awkward to have this farming just sort of sitting there on its own slide. So uh, there's Charles Darwin. Okay, I gave you the dates in which he lived if you want to look him up. <clears throat> Darwin's idea. The earth evolved. It wasn't created. So the logical end. What do you get from that? There is no God. You see, the reason why this is such a significant thing for us as Christians is because it hits at the very center. Not only does it defy the word of God, but it defies who God is. Because the Bible clearly states that God created the heavens and the earth, without question. So therefore, when you say that it evolved in every regard, and I know there's theistic evolutionists, however, when you go in the direction of evolution, what you are doing is you're overriding. First of all, there isn't evidence to support evolution. I know I'm making a huge statement in saying that, and I don't want to spend my time trying to argue with someone. However, the most critical dimensions of what would prove the basis of Darwin's theory cannot be found. And yet, in the Bible, we have a very clear enunciation of how this world came to be. And so when you take the opposite vantage point, what you have is there is no God. And that is why you see a culture that even though it lacks scientific basis, will radically give their life to support Darwinism and evolution because it gives them an escape clause. That conscience that is pricking them no longer is valid. If this world evolved, that means there's no God. Sigmund Freud looks smart, doesn't he? Freud's idea. Be curious of self. Live to define and understand you. Does that sound familiar? Uh -huh, that's what we're talking about. In other words, this idea did not derive from the Bible. This derived from Freud. Oh, logical end. Life is all about you. Darwin begat Freud. You guys ever heard of that? That's, you have to go back to the old Bible translations and you get the word begat. Sort of like Eric begat Hudson. Okay, that's my son. So Freud came from Darwin. Freud's thinking actually flowed out of Darwin's thoughts. Everyone knows this. Darwin's thought and theory of evolution spawned all the philosophical ideas that we're in the morass of today. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in this earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The exaltation of man's ability. So I did a different version of this scripture. We call it Modern Reality 10, 8, and 10. 
And Darwin begat Freud. His ideas began to be mighty in the earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The exaltation of man, what man can do if he finds himself. So Darwin said there isn't a God. And then Freud, who was begat from this, Freud said, hmm, that would make life all about me. If you remove God, then what's left? You. You see, when God remains in the picture, who matters more, you or God? Well, God does. So as a result, when you remove God, what you end up with is Freud. The supposed brilliance of men. We have this notion today that Darwin discovered the origin of all things. Really? Did he discover the origin of all things? Freud discovered the way the inner life of men really works. Really? Did that come from Freud? Is he the brilliant guy who discovered all this? Satan doesn't create. He merely takes what is already there and seeks to pervert it. Satan is not a creator. I don't know if you've ever realized that. So Lucifer, he's known as the bringer of light. Isn't that fascinating that his name means bringer of light, which to the Hebrew mind would mean illumination or understanding or knowledge. So the bringer of knowledge, enlightenment. But this light is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination, and that is to question the words of God. Did God really say? It's an illumination of an insidious nature. You were the anointed cherub who covers. This is what we read earlier. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Darwin's origins. The Bible spoke about the origin of species long before Darwin started postulating. You know, the Bible had already talked about how the world was created long before Darwin came up with this theory. Darwin didn't come up with the origin of all things. God made it very clear long before Darwin how things were created. All Darwin did was propose a model that eliminated God from his position as the creator of all things. Freud's self. The Bible spoke about self long before Freud started musing. You know that the Bible talks about the inner life of man? Very clearly. What Freud did was supply self an intellectual loophole in order to oust God as Lord without any guilt. Freud's id, ego, and superego. The Bible spoke about the old man, the flesh, and the body of sin long before Freud came along. Freud sounds like he's inventing novel notions, but the Bible is very clear and has already described all the things that Freud is attempting to put words to. It's called the old man. It's the you that needs to give up your life. Paul in Romans 7 is saying, hey, there's part of me that I want to please God, but there's something that keeps doing the opposite. What's wrong with me? And Freud comes in with his Freudian analysis and says, well, you have an id. And God says, no, you have sin. You see, an id is no escape plan for us as Christians. We have the flesh. We have the firstborn side of our life. And unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You see, we must give up our first life. We must give up this life that Freud says, make it all about that life. Enjoy that life. Seek pleasure for that life. And God says, die so that you can live. As long as you hold on to that first life, it's condemned forever and always. You must put it off. You must repent of it and believe in me and you can have my life. What Freud did was excuse the old man's lust and debauchery, treating it as normal and excusing it from any sense of guilt or pending judgment. Freud says this is just the way you are. You're wired to seek self-pleasure. 
So, we're all the same. Let's just do it. And God condemns it and says, that's sin. That's why I came and shed my blood on the cross was to save you from that behavior. Freud's subconsciousness. The Bible spoke about the heart and the reins thousands of years before Freud was ever in a diaper. What Freud did was give the inner man a license to do as he pleases, think what he pleases, and to die as he pleases, forlorn and absent of that which gives life. So I made a little picture for you. Hudson really likes my illustrations and drawings, so this is for you, bud. Uh, but you notice that he has some choices. This is you. I'm sorry to draw you that way. But over here we have self-identity. So on this side of the chart we have self-identity, and over here we have Christianity. Okay? So self-identity. Oh, to know myself better. Oh, to esteem myself more. Oh, to understand my uniqueness. Oh, to please myself. Oh, that others would know me, love me, and think highly of me. Oh, to be self-aware. See any danger in all this? This is what we are fed day in and day out. It is the exact opposite of Christianity. I, I want to introduce you to Christianity. Oh, to know Jesus better. Oh, to esteem Jesus more. Oh, to understand his uniqueness. Oh, to please my king. Oh, that others would know him, love him, and think highly of him. Oh, to be aware of Christ, his word, and his Holy Spirit. Always. I don't know if you're seeing the distinction between the two, but they are radically opposed to one another. And so the idea of knowing things about yourself is not wrong in and of itself. It's when that becomes the focus. There's so many things in life that in and of themselves, for instance, you are not wrong. You being the focus and the center of your life is. And so as a result, in every aspect, when something is perverted, sexuality is not wrong, but when it's perverted, it becomes the end of your existence. And so as a result, just like understanding what makes you unique or what enables you to do what you do well, there's something wrong with understanding those things. To understand that, for instance, I walk when I pray. Why? Because I know myself. I know that when I kneel, and I, you know, I look spiritual to all of you, but then I fall asleep. So when I walk when I pray, I stay focused. I learned that a long time ago, and so guess what? I walk when I pray, even if you think I don't look spiritual. That doesn't make any difference to me, because I would rather pray well than look spiritual to you. These are decisions I've made. Why? Because I know how I work. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if my life becomes about me and my uniqueness and what makes me special, as opposed to Jesus and what makes him special, my messages are going to proclaim me and not him. My life will proclaim me and try and draw people's attention to me instead of drawing you to him. The key terms, Christianity is not about self and self-identity. It's about Christ and hiddenness in Christ. So the way that hiddenness in Christ works is, here at, here at Ellerslie, I'll ask you guys a question, see if you know it. What's your position? Yeah. Hmm, well, you do. So in other words, that is what Christianity is about. It's Christ and us being found in him. This is what the gospel is presenting. It presents our king, our savior, our grand uh, champion. And then he says, believe, repent and believe. And when you believe, you will be swallowed up in my work. And my work will be bequeathed and shared with you. My triumph will be yours. My victory, yours. My love, yours. My humility, yours. My peace, yours. My joy, yours. 
we get to share and be treated as the same with him before the Father. We get to have our identity in him. I, I mean, how ridiculous does it sound for me to say, I'm like Jesus? Well, that is an improper way of saying it. We say, I'm in Christ. But being in Christ, I am now clothed in him. So when I approach the throne of grace, the Father treats me as the same. He treats me with the same love and acceptance that he does for his son. He calls me righteous and justified. Not because I actually am in and of my own work, but I share in his work. His work is mine. And so the mathematical equation changes. The identification doctrines, it's interesting, but classic Christianity actually uses the term identification. It doesn't always use the word identity, but it uses the concept of identification. So the identification doctrines, knowing what Christ did to make the math work. So I'll give you a quick briefing on the identification doctrines. Jesus Christ went to a cross 2,000 years ago and died. And when he did, what he worked on that cross was more than what most of us realize. But he actually crushed the head of our opponent. He dealt a death blow to that firstborn side of our life that we just can't seem to get rid of. He dealt with it. So he didn't just deal with it and say, hey, so how are you doing dealing with your firstborn life? How are you dealing with all that Freudian uh, id, ego, and superego? I can't seem to get past it, God. It's like, Controlling me. He, goes, hmm. he doesn't just do that. What he says is, repent and believe in me. Give up your first life and trust me. And in so doing, we step into Christ. Literally, we step into him and he becomes clothing for us. And what that means is that when he went to the cross, what's your position? If you're in Christ, that means you were crucified with Christ. That means when he died, you died. And your old man is dealt with, not because of your work, not because of some brilliant prayer you prayed, but because of his work. And that's our confidence. Our confidence is in his ability. It's called the identification doctrine. I identify in his work. His work is my work. My faith is in him and what he did on that cross because when he did it, he did it for me. And when he was buried, guess who was buried also? My firstborn life. It's put out of sight. It's concealed. It's hidden. And no longer is it about Eric Ludi old Eric. It's now about something new because Jesus resurrects, and when he resurrects, who's in him? We are. And we resurrect to newness of life, and we live, yet it's not us who live, it's Christ who lives in us. And that's the great mystery of godliness. This is the great mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to us as saints. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not us, the hope of glory. Christ inside of us, living, dwelling, taking this body that has been given to him and living through it so that these hands do his work, these eyes see what he sees, this mouth proclaims what he's proclaiming and this heart beats with his burdens. It's called the body of Christ. So these are the identification doctrines. Knowing what Christ did to make the math work. So we know that five plus one, that's my, I guess, unique equation today, or otherwise known as Eric Ludi, equals sinner. You see, I, I'm with you. We're all the same in that before God. Before the law of God, we all equate to six. However, look at what happens. Eric Ludi added something, some repentance and some faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And what does that give me? Identification in Christ's victory. I'm in Christ, in other words. 
I repented and believed. He did the work. I basically threw off that old, and I said, God, I cling to you. Have you ever seen a carabiner? It's a big word, but it's like one of those latch things. It was, you know, like climbers, hike, you know, mountain climbers will use it, and they'll click on. Really strong stuff. Imagine your soul has a carabiner on it, and Jesus has done the work of the cross, and he's saying, hey, guys, I'm headed to the throne of grace. What we say is, God, I can't get there without you. And we click our soul to him. We say, God, I, I can only get there in you. Take me. That's faith. Losing your identity. Well, that sounds like the exact opposite of what we're after today. Losing your identity? For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Let me say it this way. Whoever wants to seek his own identity will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's funny, but I don't struggle with identity. I know who I am. I'm a man who believes in Jesus Christ. I also know why I'm here on earth. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't spend my time thinking about me, though. I spend my time studying Jesus, knowing him, proclaiming him. And yet I have a very clear identity. I have a very clear understanding of my position in Christ. And I live from that. I'm not dour-faced, and I'm not all weak because I have low self-esteem. I don't even think about my self-esteem. I'm not concerned about being self-aware, self-enlightened. I want to know him. I pursue him. I want to be found in him. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Well, there's some good encouragement right there. Set your mind on things above, not on you. That's the way you could read that. For you died. And your life is now buried, concealed, removed from view. It's hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The greatest form of idolatry is self-worship. You have put yourself before God idolatry. You have a false God in the center of your existence, and you worship that false God. Throw down that false God. Deny that false God, that position. You were never meant to be in that place. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The declaration of a Christian. I am hid in Christ. The way I typically, if you hang around me, you're going to notice I don't say it that exact way typically. I say, I am in Christ. But that's, that's what it means. I am hid in Christ, which means I died with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Christ. And now Christ lives in and through me. I'm in Christ. I'm hid in him. I am a child of the Most High God. Now, could you imagine having a low view of your life when you actually think the realities of the kingdom of heaven. I, Eric Ludi, have been adopted by the father of all creation. All right? uh, I, I'm 
very close knit with Jesus Christ. He's actually my brother, my Lord, uh, and uh, yeah, that, that's me. Fact! The Holy Spirit lives in me. Yeah, God Almighty uh, actually has chosen this body known as Eric Ludi as his dwelling place, and he's moved in. God has moved in to this. Uh-huh. Now, I can brag about all these things. Paul sort of did. The Holy Spirit lives in me because I am in Christ. I don't just have value in light of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. It's not that I just have value in light of the fact that God shed his blood for little old Eric Ludi. Listen to this. But I have power to live a life pleasing to Jesus Christ. You see, this is life and life abundant. The world has a counterfeit to say you will only be satisfied when you are self-enlightened, when you understand your self-identity. I want you, if you're going to deal with any identity, to know your identity in Jesus Christ. You are found in him. You have been concealed in the most beautiful, loving way. So that this world no longer sees the garbage of humanity, but they see the life and the power, the goodness, the love, and the joy and the peace of heaven. They don't need to see more of us. They need to see him. This world is desperate. They're craving hope and life. They don't even know it. But they're trying to find it inside themselves. Humanitarianism is merely everyone coming together saying, we are good in and of ourselves and we can save this world. We don't need God. We don't need divine aid. That's actually what it means. We're not humanitarians. We're Christians. We need divine aid. Without God, we can do nothing. That's where we start. So God, I am helpless in and of myself. I'm condemned and rightfully so without you. Without you, I can do nothing. I submit this body to you and I say, I trust you. Come live inside of this and make something of this life known as Eric. For your glory, fame, We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.